Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, that your church is victorious because she is in Jesus Christ, that we have overcome the grave in our sin through Christ our Lord. For these reasons, he is deserving of the highest praise. And what else do we offer when we come to the cross with nothing but sin and damnation worthy, depravity? What else do we have to offer our Lord in thankfulness and gratefulness and praise and adoration and worship than the testimony of his faithfulness to us? Therefore, we take this morning the cup that you have granted to us in salvation, and we offer it back to you in worship, singing and confessing and meditating, proclaiming and testifying that Jesus Christ is worthy of our obedience Jesus Christ is worthy of our allegiance. Jesus Christ is worthy of our profession. And He is worthy of our due diligence, our dedication, our duty and service unto the praise of His name in the advance of His kingdom. I pray this morning as we turn to the Holy Scriptures, wherein is recorded for us the revelation of Your power and Your authority, O Lord God, that You would write upon the table of our hearts that we may not soon forget that we might not just be hearers, but doers also of your word, what you have proclaimed forevermore from the pages of Holy Scripture this day. We pray that you would reinforce the foundation under our feet, that you would quicken the word in our mouth, that you would sharpen the sword in our hand, and that you would equip us with in our resolve to be diligent and obedient about the calling for every Christian to advance the cause of Christ in the areas to which you have ordained that we be faithful under the service of our great Sovereign, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in His name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege. What a great gift. What an awesome grace. What a blood-bought privilege it is to join together in worship of our Savior and to open up His Holy Word. Would you turn with me to Psalm 119 today as we open our series on this great, the most lengthy song and chapter of the Bible, 176 verses, which will cover the first portion under the title Aleph, Covenant Revelation. The first eight verses will be our primary text today. The aim of this morning's message is to introduce Psalm 119, this great wisdom literature song, this great celebration of the law and the word, the statutes and the so many words that the author used to describe the glories of our God. Our, my aim this morning is to introduce Psalm 119 in context. And hopefully in so doing, we will have a greater appreciation for this, the magnum opus of wisdom literature, if you will, Psalm 119. As you're able, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand with me for the reading of his authoritative scripture? Here is the Word of God from Psalm 119 under the title Aleph in verses 1 through 8 of our psalm today. Hear now His Holy Word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. For two more examples of back-to-back -back acrostic psalms, would you turn back a few pages to Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. The Psalm 119 joins chapters 25, 34, 37, 111, and 112, and will be followed by Psalm 145. Psalm 119, therefore, is the sixth of the seven-part acrostic set, if you will, in the Psalter. What is an acrostic psalm? An acrostic psalm is a psalm that adopts a particularly unique, symmetrical, beautiful literary form. Each verse or stanza of the song typically starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet Aleph, 
and then moves to the second letter in the second stanza or verse, and so on and so forth, alphabetically, until all 22 letters are covered. That's an acrostic song. We know what an acrostic is. Say you um, call something by the first letter of each of the individual names, that would be an acrostic, right? An acrostic psalm uses the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in succession to introduce each section of the song. As the uh, sixth acrostic psalm of the Psalter, this acro- uh, we are reminded that the acrostics represent a unique literary structure, a truly amazing poetic form in the scriptures. Each stanza following the last introduces the next letter alphabetically in the Hebrew alphabet, which brings to mind this question, what could be the purpose of this device? Well, the purpose, let me submit in this by way of review, are likely manyfold. As we have noted in past sermons on acrostic psalms, the following could well, or the, the psalm and its form well communicates the following. Order. Our God is a God of order. There's an orderliness to an acrostic psalm that mirrors the orderliness of our God and His nature, character, attributes, and His works of creation, and His design for history, and His salvation of our own souls. Our God is an orderly God. Design. There is intention. There's beautiful uh, engineering that's involved in all that God accomplishes, and all that He ordains, and all that He executes in history, in salvation, and in his scriptures, including this glorious example, an acrostic song. Purpose. God ordains things for a purpose, to communicate and to emphasize, to reinforce through parallels and other means, that which is of utmost importance. Symmetry. God is a God of beauty, balance, symmetry, and he ordains things to be properly weighed and set up and established so that they have a certain form that represents what we've been talking about, this order design and so forth. And even as we recognize these kind of aesthetic elements, that means the way that they appear, we also understand some practical purposes for an acrostic psalm as well. It should and would assist if it's utilized for memorization and communication of its contents. So the literary structure in this form is really an amazing thing. It serves practically and also aesthetically to communicate the glories of God. The comprehensive authority and sufficiency of His Word are featured in the structure itself as well as the content of the acrostic songs. In English, we could say the following. Jesus is Lord from A to Z. And that acrostic following all the way through the alphabet of the Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew characters communicates as much. He is Lord, in English, from A to Z. In Greek, that in fact is one of his names. Jesus, our Lord, is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the A, he is the Z, he is the beginning and the end. Or in Hebrew, he is the Aleph, he is the Ta. As an acrostic, Psalm 119, however, is especially elaborate. It brings the acrostic form to a whole nother level, and it is unique and unparalleled in Scripture, or as far as I know, any other example. Each stanza in this song is divided into eight verses. So eight times 22, if my math is right, that gives us our total, 176. And each one of these eight verses in these 22 sections all begin with the same letter. Hence the titles in your scriptures, Aleph, beginning, uh, these, or beginning the sections of Psalm 119, followed by Beth and so forth. So if you notice in your scripture in Psalm 119, there is Aleph as a title at the top and eight verses which follow. If you were a, st- a scholar of Hebrew, you would recognize each verse begins with that same letter. I was looking online for perhaps an example, an equivalent in English, and here's one that I found just to give you an idea. A, blessing is on them that are undefiled in the way and walk in the law of Jehovah. A, blessing is on them that keep his commandments and seek him with their whole heart. Also, on them that do no wickedness but walk in his ways. A law has... has, a law hast thou given unto us that we should diligently keep your commandments. Ah, Lord, that my ways were made so direct that I might keep your statutes, and so on and so forth. A few examples of a succession of possible translation of verses beginning with A, and then in the next section followed by B, and so forth. 
So this is an elaborate acrostic song. Each stanza is divided into eight verses. Multiplied by 22, we get our 176 verse total. Each verse in each stanza begins with the same letter, introducing the section. And additionally, just to add more weights, a weight of symmetry and beauty, there are eight synonyms that are used for covenant revelation. The truth, the word of God, employed by the author, while each may be used interchangeably, they, in their, uh, in their particular definitions, nevertheless enhance the understanding of God's revealed truth. That is to say, in his authority and in his kindness, he has declared to his people the following. And let me give you these eight. And this we will, of course, go over through the course of this song in the future. But listed quickly, law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, and word. Those are eight references to, if you will, the covenant revelation, the revealed truth of our God. They're used interchangeably, yet, as I say, each one adds to our understanding of the glory, the beauty, the virtue, the unparalleled majesty of His revelation. Now, in the first eight verses, seven of those synonyms appear, and verse 9 uh, adds the eighth in Psalm 119. These terms reinforce the central theme of the song and are joined along the way by even more repeated references that accompany the proclamations of Yahweh. A few of those extra words that you'll see repeated along the way, judgment, promise, justice, steadfast love, faithfulness, and salvation. So just in its introduction, you may feel as if you're drinking from a fire hose at the glories and the weight and the density of this song. Suffice to say, we have some time to spend in this passage. So while it might feel overwhelming at the start, hopefully we will realize the purpose of the song in going over these things in our preaching series out of Psalm 119 once a month until we hopefully at the end have a deeper, greater appreciation for the covenant revelation of our Lord. We need this. Let me uh, hasten to add that the reason, a reason we need Psalm 119 and to understand it in context and appreciate its message is because our modern cultural experience provides little help in appreciating the Bible's longest chapter and the longest song. What are some of the most popular forms of media today? Well, Twitter, Facebook, social media, headlines, things like this, tweets, all these come to mind. A couple things they often have in common, uh, almost always have in common, I might venture to say. Brevity and banality. Banality means they're worthless. Brevity means they're short. How can you tweet Psalm 119? You can't. It's much longer than 120 characters or less. How can you make a meme that communicates all the weight of this song? You can't. It has a particular literary device intended for you to dwell and to meditate and think about over and over and at great length the majesty of our God revealed in His truth proclaimed in His holy word. I bring this to your attention to say, if we, are to cut our, if we would adopt our cultural forms and cut ourselves off from the very means of grace that God has provided to understand the scriptures, we would do ourselves a great disservice. And because of these things, I don't believe we very often value Psalm 119. So we need help in this regard. How can we appreciate this song the way it is intended? Well, I think there's corrective in, um, helps in the scripture for us to do this. Though our modern cultural experience gives us little to no help in this regard, nevertheless, if we consider Psalm 119 in the context of the giving of the law, particularly in light of Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 5, I submit to you that Psalm 119 comes alive. When you consider Psalm 119 as a response, a worthy response to the giving of the law of God in Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 5, it comes alive. It makes sense why so many verses and so much is carefully given to articulate a worthy song of worship to the God who has revealed himself in such power, fear, glory, and salvation. I submit that Psalm 119 stands forever as a fitting response to the words of Yahweh himself in Deuteronomy 5.29. 
before we turn to those other acrostic psalms, let me reference this verse to open our exposition today. This would be Deuteronomy chapter 5 in the context of the giving of the law. There is a cry from the Lord himself, and it is as follows. Out of heaven, no, excuse me, 529. Oh, this is Yahweh himself speaking. Oh, that they had such a mind as this, always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. 28 has said, The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. The Lord said to me, Moses speaking, I have heard the words of this people. So this is the word of God to Moses. I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Then the Lord goes on to say, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Psalm 119 is a perfect match to that cry. If there was a faithful songwriter who heard and heeded that cry from the Lord, took it seriously, would he not write the most glorious, intricate, elegant, acrostic song at length, covering from A to Z, featuring every letter in the language, so that all of the language of the people is employed to reinforce to the mind, to strengthen the heart, to fear the Lord, and to encourage and inspire Him to keep His commandments? Absolutely. Deuteronomy 5.29, this cry from the Lord, is a match for Psalm 119. In this context, Psalm 119 could be considered a spirit-inspired response to this cry from Yahweh Himself, Oh, that they had such a mind, always to fear me and to keep my commandments. Psalm 119 in context. Now, in our text today, these first three verses, we have the following under this heading. Here's the heading. The covenant revelation of God's law word is heeded via three ways. Declaration, petition, and pledge. I use this hyphenated law word term that I picked up from R.J. Rushuni in his writings. And what he was recognizing is a concept in Scripture where God's word and law are used interchangeably. That is to say, we have a dichotomy in the modern mind that I love God's word, not the law so much, but the grace is good, right? But this is not a dichotomy, a separation of things that exists anywhere in Scripture. In the Scriptures, although these things can be distinguished, they are never separated, much like justification and sanctification. Though they are distinguished in their, in their concept, they are never separated. They go together. And so it is with God's law and word. I wonder if you remember the four parts of kingdom that we covered when we were preaching through Matthew. I ventured to summarize a kingdom this way. It's made up of a sovereign, that would be the king, a subjects, that would be those who are, he's in charge of, realm, the reach of his rule, and law, the will of the sovereign. How is the will of the sovereign any different from his word and law? No, they go together. In other words, the will and law of God are synonyms. The word of God contains these things, and they are not to be separated. The covenant revelation, therefore, of God's word is heeded first by declaration. God makes it known. And echoing this primary or this first step in God revealing himself, the author assumes this posture as he proclaims the first four verses. He says, proclaiming, declaring, verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So assuming this posture of declaration, the author proclaims boldly for all to hear with the megaphone of Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, blessed are all those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. This is the word of God. This is the proclamation. This is the authoritative decree going forth. This is stating the facts that if you argue with, you will be proven a fool. If you disagree with, you will be judged. If you do not adopt, you will be shamed. If you do not bow before, you will be judged. 
It doesn't matter what you think, your opinion, beg to differ, other claims. The king has spoken. And this is his declaration. And in the context of Psalm 119, as this is a fitting song worthy in response to the giving of the law, the author is mindful of the proclamation, the declaration, the unequivocal authority, the bold statement, the absolute certain decree of the Lord, and and the way it was given on Sinai. And the punctuation marks, the exclamation points that the Lord included were fire, earthquake, storm, a mountain, and the voice as the sound of a blast of trumpets. And thus Psalm 119 begins with this trumpet blast proclaiming the truth of God. The first thing we might find surprising is that His law is not just a, is not a curse for those who are in covenant relationship with Him. This would be the understanding in context. Indeed, for those who are in right relationship with the Lord, His law is a blessing. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Do you consider the law of the Lord in all its blessed glory and benefit? Do you consider the law of the Lord to be something to treasure, to understand, to uh, apply, and to walk in? This is the third use of the law in classic theology. It is a vision, if you will, for worship. It lays out how to, just, or how to rightly obey and walk in the steps and in obedience and in the good graces out of overflowing duty to our sovereign who has given his own life to save us. Blessed are those who have this kind of relationship with the law of the Lord. That is, blessed are those whose eyes have been opened, who realize covenant revelation, who therefore, and as a result, walk in the law of the Lord whose hearts have been changed. They have heard that they are sinners and rebels under condemnation via that same law. They've repented. And they've received salvation. A sufficient sacrifice has been offered in their place, and now they desire to follow their Savior, their Lord, and the one who has died for them. Verse 2 goes on. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. Again, a parallel way of saying the same thing. Incidentally, both verses begin with B. In the original language, as we said, they both begin with Aleph. Uh, the same, uh, again and again, you know, for eight verses, that same letter is used to emphasize these things. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Now, I mentioned Psalm 111 and 112. And the beginning of Psalm 119 could be a callback, if it was written later, to a set of prior acrostic psalms, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. And these psalms go together, just to jog your memory. The first is a declaration of the Lord to be feared. It's that proclamation. Praise the Lord. There's this commitment. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. Full of splendor and majesty is His work. And His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. It goes on in this manner. But then Psalm 112 moves from this proclamation of the Lord to be feared to the blessings that attend the godly, those who fear Him. Well, I think our title for this message was The Rewards of Godly Fear. Psalm 112.1, Praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So understand God is to be feared, and secondly, then understand that the man who fears the Lord is blessed, who greatly delights in His commandments. Hear the similarities? And then it begins to detail ways in which he will be blessed. His offspring will be mighty. Generation of upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And it goes on, using poetic language, to multiply reward upon reward of the blessings that, are the, that belong to those who understand that God is to be feared and duly fear him. Now you might think to yourself, well, so far, we've only covered some Old Testament concepts. But as surely this does not you know, really relate to New Testament revelation. Isn't the law dead with the turning of the page of the last prophet to Jesus Christ in the incarnation? And of course, this message is false. We know this from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus echoes this same pattern. And just to remind you, and to provide New Testament cross-reference, and to emphasize, in so doing the continuity of Scripture, I'm going to turn to Matthew 5. In the end of chapter 4, 
Here we have the context of his audience. He, Jesus, went through all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So there's your proclamation. There's your declaration, your authoritative decree by the mouth of the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the gospel of the kingdom. And he's emphasizing his authority and underscoring it by these acts of sovereign power, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and then they brought those who were sick and paralytics and so forth. He healed them all, seeing the crowds. So this whole audience now that he has gathered by proclamation and demonstration of his glory, they sit down, and what does he say? He opens his mouth in a sermon we've called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, the persecuted, and so forth. And then he follows this after saying, you are called to be salt and light. Do not think, verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, Perhaps we could say by illustration, not an aleph, not a beth, not a taw, no, not a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. From A to Z, Jesus fulfilled the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And interjecting there, after all, is not a kingdom made up of a sovereign, a subject's realm, and a law. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus follows the same pattern, does he not? A proclamation of his sovereign authority and power. And then there is an acknowledgement of that sovereign power. People are coming humbly, offering themselves, seeking healing from the Messiah, listening intently to the word of the kingdom. And for those who recognize the Messiah, bow before his authority, and sought salvation from his hand, as even represented by these physical healings. Who were they? They were the poor in spirit, rejecting their sin, their false allegiances, and their one-time worship of idols. They were those who recognized their dependency of the Lord in so doing. They were the meek. They weren't the proud. They weren't the arrogant. They weren't the ambitious and the self-important. But they, they were the ones who came and laid their lives down, recognizing their poverty of body and soul before the sovereign. And he says... Blessed are you, even if you're persecuted. And in fact, through this very means of you bowing before the Lord and Savior, your heart being changed and blessings now accompanying you, I will use you to grow my kingdom as both salt and light. And how will you serve the growth of my kingdom? You will be an ambassador. You will love my law. You will walk in my precepts, my statutes, my testimonies, and so forth. All these words in Psalm 119 uses to multiply the will of God and His intent. It's awesome. Jesus Christ follows in His preaching, in His ministry, the same pattern that we see in Old Testament revelation. That yes, there is a call to bow before His authority, but when you do so humbly, there's blessings that come to you and a purpose that you would walk in His ways, that you would testify to Him that you would be salt and light, and in so doing, that the Lord would use that witness and that testimony as you are being sanctified to proclaim the knowledge of Him. Now, to help us understand our duty in this regard, Psalm 119 multiplies not just synonyms for the Word of God, but also action verbs, ways that we are supposed to, or that when we are submitted to the Lord, we will be changed and put feet to our faith. Psalm 119.1, notice the action words. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. There's one, walk. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him, another action word, there's a verb, seek him with their whole heart. Who also do no wrong, but walk, again, in his ways. You have, your commanded, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Walk, seek, keep. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. It goes on this way. There are parallels in the text that have to do not just with the virtues of the moral and moral excellencies of our God, to use Second Peter language, law, testimonies, ways, and precepts, but our action, our response accordingly. And these are action verbs. Verbs that indicate we are in response to the glories of God to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, to seek Him. Again, to walk. 
and to praise and to learn and to keep. And hence, the journey begins. Now this, I submit, will be a theme through Psalm 119. You know, the next section opens with this question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And as you follow through Psalm 119, you see a progression, another beautiful picture of the young man committing his way to the Lord, growing in knowledge and understanding, weathering trial, difficulty, and affliction, and growing in wisdom, stature, and favor with the Lord, as the New Testament talks about Jesus' own experience, and hence the calling of every true believer. There's a progression. The journey begins. You know, and everyone might, was probably familiar with John Bunyan's great work, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you think of the journey of the Christian life from an ascent to the declared truths of the gospel, bowing before and seeking to be obedient to the Lord and walking in His ways your whole life long, if you keep that perspective, then read Psalm 119, you find it is something like the first Pilgrim's Progress written. There's a direction to it. It's a journey. There's progression. There's maturation. There's a destination. There's a way. There's an end. And there are perils along the way. But there's also victory in the Lord and in the means that He provides. And so it's incredible to see these things. Under this declaration, our author acknowledges as much. He declares that there is a relationship between blessing and the law, the Word of God. That the rewards of godly fear follow those who realize God is to be feared and demonstrate that and surrender and trusting in Him for their salvation and then following His instructions. And they do so, they follow Him through real actions, walking, keeping, seeking, their <coughs> uh, uh, in conforming their works and their actions, their decisions, their goals and ambitions to His desires for them. And this creates a movement, guard and go, defense and dominion, an end is in sight and progress along the way. And this, again I submit to you, is a fitting response in the context which the author is no doubt mindful of the giving of the law. And I want to turn to our parallel passage again in Deuteronomy 4 to illustrate this. In Deuteronomy 4 and 5, at the giving of the law, there was this proclamation at the beginning. Summarized by this phrase, Hear, O Israel, or in 4.1 it's listed this way, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Remember this. Do not forget this. And I don't know how many years passed before Psalm 119 is written, but I sense the author realized that 176 verses were warranted to call the singers to repentance realize that the giving of the law came in this fearful proclamation of the Lord who commanded Israel to listen, to never forget that the generations might hear and follow the word of God. Verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. These are the blessings that follow the righteous, escaping the judgments due to sin. Verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and rules. Do you hear this language and these uh, synonyms multiplying to illustrate the will of God as it's revealed to them? As the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. And he goes on this way. There's more uh, context as well, the giving of the law. Moses uh, repeats these terms numerous times. In chapter 5, verse 1, we have this. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel. There's that proclamation, that declaration language. The statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, that you shall learn them and be careful to do them. And then follows in Deuteronomy 5, a reiteration, Deuteronomy, in fact, means the second giving of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments follow. And so, and this, of course, follows verse 44, which states in context this way, This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And as I mentioned to you before, 
the context of this giving of the law, the calling of Israel's attention to the most important things to organize their life, to organize their relationships one to another, to organize their civil order as a nation, their society, and so forth. This came in the context of a powerful God to be feared, revealing these things to them, calling heaven and earth to witness, and demonstrating His power by shaking the heavens and the earth and blasting forth in deafening proclamation His word to all who gathered there at Sinai, shaking in their boots before the authoritative, powerful presence of a sovereign God. Hear, O Israel. Now in light of the giving of the law, does Psalm 119 not make more sense? Is it not a fitting anthem to commemorate that moment? Do you think it's too long? Certainly not. Not if the power and the fearsome uh, revelation of the Lord was indeed as intense as recorded in Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Truly our God is worthy of the attention and worthy of the dedication that uh, His law demands as we see it now in context. So that's the first portion of Psalm 119, 1-8. A covenant revelation of God's law word is heeded by a declaration. The second way that the author heeds the covenant word of God is by petition. Verses 5 and 6. He says this, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. So you see, he moves from this posture of proclamation to a posture of prayer, from declaration to petition, asking of the Lord. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. Before he says, you have commanded, and his word goes out to all who would listen. Now he personalizes his own responsibility in light of this sovereign decree and says, oh, that my ways might be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This is the cry of one who stands before Sinai, as it were, who has heard the loud announcement, Hear, O Israel, and has inclined his ear to realize the fearful declaration of the Lord in his sovereign glory. And how does he respond? What's a fitting response? Petition. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Help me not to forget. Write upon the table of my heart your ways, your statutes, your judgments, the things that you have proclaimed to us by law, testimony, precepts, ways, commandments, and word. Let these not depart from me. May I remember them all my days. In other words, may Psalm 119 and songs like it and all of your scriptures be uh, my, most precious, uh, my most precious commodity that I would hold them close that I might not forget what you have done. Response to the revelation of God's word. We should answer in both humility and resolve. What kind of response does this kind of declaration warrant? One of humility, crying out that God might save us. Crying out that God might help us. Crying out that we would not be found among the majority who hear and then forget. Or with the passing generations adopt a different culture or tempted by the idols and the kings of our neighbors to leave the exclusive uh, uh, commandments of the Lord and compromise and syncretize. That means mix in things that are unrelated to the law and word of God. But to stay truthful, to stay committed, and to cry out to the Lord that he would help us do so. This is the heart of humility that answers to the Lord. Taking seriously that Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that my people would hear my voice and not forget in so many words, as the Lord himself cries out, uh, as we have read. But just to read again, Oh, that they, might ha that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and keep all my commandments. To which the psalmist responds, Oh God, may I always have this mind to keep all your commandments. And he, thus he responds in humility. He also responds in resolve. He, determined, he asked the Lord not only that he would keep his statutes, but that he would do so steadfastly. Oh, that my ways, that, uh, my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This, of course, dovetails with our message last week. In 2 Peter, we're talking about 
those supplements to our faith, that if we add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, that was one of them, to steadfastness godliness, and to godliness a self-control, it might be out of order, to self-control brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection love. If these are ours and are increasing, then entrance to the kingdom of God will be provided. We will never fall. They will reinforce us. You see, the language that Peter uses goes back to the Old Testament. And he's just really echoing in so many sentiments what has already been stated by the author of Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. We remarked how virtues, a synonym that for that is moral excellencies. It what's make it, virtues are what makes God awesome. And if we love and appreciate and seek to model what makes God awesome, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his peace, and so forth, the communicable attributes of God, we will be walking in the heart of the psalmist of Psalm 119. We will be following the instructions of the apostle Peter, and we will be living in light of that powerful authoritative declaration in Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Thus, truly realizing the power and the authority of God is worthy of a response, both humility and resolve. The psalmist goes on to commit in a threefold response to endurance, discipline, and attention. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, patient endurance, as we've remarked before. In keeping your statutes, discipline, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed, attention, on all your commandments. A threefold response, endurance, discipline, and attention. And he knows that this is accompanied by blessing. He says to the negative in verse 5, Then I shall not be put to shame. Of course, if we take lightly the word of God and his commandments, we fail to realize their virtue and value, we will be put to shame. Our nation is in a, is in a shameful place right now. I've often remarked that the hand of God's judgment is evident in our world today. You know, the prophets spoke in harsh language. They said that our leaders, that, that the leaders of rebellious nations, namely Israel, their shame would be paraded before their enemies if they did not walk in the statutes and the commandments and in the uh, principles, the precepts, and the law and the word of God. The uh, prophets often used the language of pulling their skirts up over their heads and parading their nakedness before their enemies and just a, a, a display, a parade of debauchery and embarrassment and the dignity of statesmanship being stripped from them in a moment, becoming the object of mockery, derision, and scorn by their enemies that once feared them. This is the shame that attends the way of those who leave the word of God. In Psalm 94:20, when it commands that the worst of civil sins are to frame injustice by statute, we recognize if we have deemed it legal by arbitrary fiat man-made false law that babies are not worthy of life, but the innocent in the mother's womb can be taken by the will of the mother, you know, abortion in our land. So long as that law stands, it is to our shame. And we stand worthy of the kind of judgment that would parade the shame of our leaders before our enemies and make us the laughingstock of the world. Have you read the headlines in the last few weeks? America has lost her standing in the world. Our allies think we betrayed us. Our enemies no longer fear us. And our president is an idiot, people say. People will describe him, and sometimes it seems like a worthy description, as a dementia pa patient following orders by his handlers. And there are many times, and I, and I don't think there are too many politicians who stand in stark contrast to him. After all, the role, the office of politician is among the most despised, even generally, culturally, in our land. Why? Because we are shameful. That's why. And there is a sense, even in the visceral truth that remains, the law of God written upon the heart of our society, this understanding that our politicians have become shameful uh, and, uh, and examples of wickedness and absurdity. And why is this? It's because... 
They have begun to govern and codify injustice by statute and frame by law the things that God hates. And they have despised his law, his testimony, his ways, his precepts, his statutes, his commandment, and his word, even deeming the proclamation of such illegal and many frames of reference. No longer in the public square is it tolerated for you to preach the word of God that says, in many cases, uh, that marriage is between exclusively one man and one woman, but you are shouted down by the shameful voices of culture by being as one who is intolerant if you hold to the created order and sexual identity or marriage or these other hot-button topics of perverse identity that our world is endorsing these days. What is going on? Well, the Word of God is not being mocked. That's what's going on. And the shamefulness of the people who are wayward in heart is ever more evidence. Jesus said, blessed are you when the wicked shame you. Who would you rather be shamed by? A wicked culture? Oh, Christian, you're intolerant, hate speech, you don't show any love, who are you to judge? Who would you rather be shamed by? A culture that is dead in their trespasses and sins and shamefully adopting all this reprobate behavior? Or shamed by the Lord on that final day when he says, depart from me, I never knew you because you paid no heed to my statutes and my laws. My precepts and the things that I command, my testimonies and my ways for far, far from your heart. You demonstrated your reprobate rebellion and despising the things that are the basis for reality and the foundation upon which a soul and a nation thrives, survives, and is anchored. And as such, you will be shamed for eternity. Which is it going to be? You'll be the victim of the shame of wicked culture or the victim of the shaming of God himself. Which will it be? Jesus says in Matthew 5, which we read in part already, Blessed are you when they persecute you and utter all kinds of things falsely for my name's sake. Those are the ones who truly are blessed. They will re receive reward in the kingdom of heaven. They actually, through this very means, provide a stark contrast for a wicked culture and as such are salt and light when they proclaim that the law of God is not obsolete but in fact fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Finally today, we have point number three. The covenant revelation of God's law word is heeded by declaration by petition. And of course, if you want to look for greater context, there is a cry, we won't cover this today, a petition from the people of God for a mediator, in fact, when God reveals himself in power and glory. God answers their prayer and provides Moses. You can read this in Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 28, to stand between them, to go on their behalf, to plead their case before the Lord. And if we understood how powerful the Lord is and how fearsome are his judgments, and if we understood the depth of eternity and how much we deserved hell in our unrepentant state, you better believe we would cry out in this land for a mediator. And if you are a true believer in this room, you have cried out for a mediator and your prayer has been answered. Jesus Christ now stands before the glory that you could not stand before and on the basis of his blood secures your entry, audience with the Father. How much do you appreciate that, saints? Do you appreciate that enough? To give to him a 176-verse song of praise? Do you appreciate him enough to go and to commit to further study and uh, to meditate and memorize in some cases, as people have done through the ages, <coughs> this set, this 22 set of eight verses in this acrostic form? Man, in light of our great God, we see that Psalm 119 is a worthy response. And therefore... Our section today closes with a pledge in verses 7 through 8. We have declaration, we have petition, verses 5 and 6. We have pledge, verses 7 and 8. Our author sings, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You notice the language there. I will praise you. I will keep your statutes. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules, does learning the law of God inspire praise in your heart? When you go over the, the, all of the ways and means, the statutes, the principles that God has set up, so much of the Old Covenant is given to this revelation. So much of our scriptures in the Old Testament is an exposition. It's a case study and it's a declaration of the forever truths that principally undergird the cases of the law of God. When you read them, does it move you to praise? It did the author of Psalm 119. If it does not move us to praise, we're missing something. We're missing the value of his rules and statutes. Perhaps we're not understanding them in the first place. And this is an area of preaching 
and evangelical life in the modern age that is woefully lacking. There is so little to say about the value and the virtue and the powerful design of the law of God of old. You know, little nuggets that I have gathered through the years through a preacher here or there who's more faithful than others have really blessed my soul. Remember listening to Douglas Wilson and him saying that, you know, and uh, he said to someone, you should not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Oh, really? What's the value of that statement? Oh, that's just something that can only really be appreciated and understood in an uh, agrarian culture of a Bronze Age or whatever, the dismissive, evolutionary, godless, shameful uh, response. No, the principle, Doug was saying there, is that that which is designed for life should not be used as an instrument for death. And the principle he drew from that is we should not send our daughters to war. Isn't that interesting? We should not send our daughters to war because God has designed, by particular call, mothers to nurture children. And the West at one time appreciated this kind of thing and didn't consider it the height of noble virtue to send our women who are equipped to bear and raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord like no other man could ever pretend to be, even though we deny as much in the popular culture today. It's a bunch of hogwash and everyone knows it. Nevertheless, we used to value the purposes and the dignity of the calling of motherhood to such high degree that it would be the last thing on our mind to send them into harm's way in the battle. And every man who is worthy of his own dignity and was not shame and not was riddled with shame to defer and abdicate that responsibility rose chivalrously to that call accordingly and refused, if this is a correct application of this law, to boil the kid in the mother's milk. Now, that is worthy of more study, and I bring it up as an example of potential powerful applications of the law of God that are often missing in our values and in our understanding. Why did Jesus cleanse the temple twice? I heard a great commentary on this that went back to the laws for leprosy back in the Old Covenant. You know, the priest would go in, and if there was a pathogen in the walls, he would declare that the place is unclean, and it would be scrubbed down. Then he would go back several weeks later, and if that... uh, if that toxin was still within the walls uh, of the house, if it was still, you know, that mold or that black mold or that bacteria was there, then the house would be destroyed. It would be raised, it would be leveled with fire down to its base. You know, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. And there are those insightful commentators who have identified that he was basically following, the, as a priest, the law of the leprous house in his destruction of the temple. He went in, cleaned it out, said my father's house would be a house of prayer. And you know what the wicked did? They went right back in and kept selling pigeons to the poor at exorbitant prices and changing their money and profiting off the same. My father's house should not be a den of thieves. And the second time Jesus destroyed the temple in AD 70, would never be rebuilt again. Destroyed to its very basis, burned with fire. Why? Because the spiritual pathogen within the walls, our high priest declared, was worthy of destruction. And now he has set up himself as that, as that flawless, perfect temple, so to speak, said, you can destroy this temple, it will rise again in three days. You cannot keep me in the grave. The temple of your own vain ambitions, the corrupt and blasphemous temple of your old idolatry, that which you invested your hope in, in your legalism and your blasphemy and your Phariseeism and so forth, that is growing rotten and decrepit and will be destroyed. But this temple, I will raise up in three days, and so he did. Now you see, by those two examples of some of the value of the law of God that I've discovered, It's something really glorious indeed. It should move you to praise. Some of these things in the law of God that are deemed obscure, in fact, as we mine the riches therein contained, it will move us to have a more profound understanding and appreciation and confidence in the whole word of God. Thus we will join the psalmist as we realize these things and praising him with an upright heart because we are learning his righteous rules. One of the great high callings of magistrate in the Old Testament was called casuistry, and that just means making right rules by applying a principle to a case. And then the body of examples was deemed case law in the Old Testament. And this is the calling of the biblical, uh, biblically convicted magistrate even today to take the principles of Scripture and the case before him and rule wisely. An example of that might be the one I gave before, don't boil the kid in the mother's milk. And another principle in view there, sorry, I'm just kind of spitting these off to give you an idea of the value of God's law is citing the minimal case. In other words, sometimes it seems like an obscure law. Oh, well, don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Give him his due wages. That's the minimal case. In other words, the law of God is saying this. 
if, a, if a, a cow that's doing good work for you is worthy of feed, then how much more is your employee worthy of being paid his due wages? You see, citing the minimal case. It's a genius thing. If you don't cite the minimal case, you have to cite every other case where it applies. But the scriptures are amazing. They're powerful. And do we pray, and we will have more fruit in our praise and in our worship as we realize these things and as we grow in his righteous rules. There's a connection between praise and an understanding of the law. And finally, there's a connection between obedience and the presence of God. Verse 8, Psalm 119. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. In other words, as long as the Lord remains with his servant, he will, in fact, be able to keep his statutes. Turn with me one more time to Deuteronomy 4. 9 through 14. It's our context passage, which provides for us just that background, that historical weight for our passage today. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 through 14, we pick up with these words. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped with darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you may do them in the land that you are going over to possess. And then further warning, verse 15, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, likeness, and so forth. And of course the people very quickly violated that command. Only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget lest my commands depart from your heart. In other words, recognize that in the presence of the Almighty's favor is the grace to walk in obedience. You know, this was a foreshadowing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, when were the people walking in the ways and the statutes of the Almighty? Well, it was pictured in their path unto the promised land, following his revelation by cloud by day, by fire by night, and obeying the laws that he had given them along the way. And if, they did, and if they did these things, they were abiding in his presence. They were participating in the means that he had provisionally offered, you know, through the sacrificial system to have that picture of atonement and to realize that their sins must be atoned for. But these things that were prophesied of old and prefigured in these ways are gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a relationship between our obedience and the presence of the Lord indwelling us. How do you know that you are a believer? How, are you, how do you know that you are walking in the Spirit? Well, as you begin to love, appreciate, study, apply, and value, and, and uh, to greater and greater degree, the law of God. To value his, his statutes, His precepts, His Word, and all of these synonyms that we have been covering today. Thus, today, saints, we see in context not just a greater appreciation for Psalm 119 in its length and in its beauty, but also we see in the New Testament in Jesus Christ and by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, greater ability to actually fulfill these words. That through Christ, by the power of the indwelling Spirit, we might walk in His law, keep His testimonies, walk in His ways. That we might pay attention to His precepts, keep His statutes, have our eyes fixed on His commandments, to learn His righteous rules, to praise Him for them, to keep His statutes, and that we would guard these things and realize that in this way are the blessings that overflow to us 
because our Lord has purchased them at the cost of his blood. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we thank you for the covenant revelation of your holy scriptures. What a powerful reminder it is as we look to you and what you have revealed at the giving of the law, which you have given in such glorious poetic form and song in Psalm 119, what you have fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would love your law, that we would walk in your ways, that we would seek first your kingdom and righteousness, that we would do so, Lord, inspired and enabled by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, having first confessed our sins, placed hope in Christ, and then joyously giving our lives in the service of his kingdom until he returns. We thank you, God, for this great privilege, and I pray that you would equip us to be more faithful to this end by the proclamation of your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen.